how can I have spiritual integrity with my sex life, you know? And like, that doesn't have to look like I'm a fucking Puritan. So that's why I mean, I'm curious to ask other people about what their experience is with it, you know? What does their, what does others healing look like? everybody this is Ryan and this is Louisa and you're listening to sober sex I made a promise to myself to stop not listening what it looks like now is that I make conscious choices around my sexuality it started with putting down the substances really and starting to listen and the listening to my body has changed hey Hello, everybody. We are delighted to welcome Sital Panisar to Sober Sex this week. Sital is a counsellor and psychotherapist specialising in mental health and well-being within the music industry. She is also the founder of Musicotherapy, an organisation aimed to improve mental health support for musicians and creatives, particularly focused on people of colour, alongside increasing awareness of rising mental health issues in the industry and tackling the stigmas along the way. Greetings, Sita. We are really so excited to talk to you today. Really excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Before we get into it, what are your pronouns? She and her. Thank you very much. No problem. Thanks for asking. (laughs) You know, trying to stay woke in the conversations. Definitely. (laughs) Um, so can you tell us how, just how and where are you today? Like, check in. Yeah, I'm I'm good today. I'm in London, so I practice in London. Um, although, you know, with having practice online as well, there's, there's clients that come from all walks of life in all areas of the world. Um, but I'm good. I've had some clients this morning. It's been a productive morning, so I'm feeling energized today. I've, I woke up a bit tired, but I'm feeling energized after having some interaction with my clients. So that's that's always great. How are you? How are you both? <laughs> it's so nice to talk to like a counselor slash therapist because you really know how you are. <laughs> You're not like, I'm okay. You're like, I'm feeling energized. I'm like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a, that's the um, beauty of it. It can be both. I always talk to my counselor friends. It's a, it's both a blessing and a curse to be that aware of how right. you're feeling all the time. Right. Yeah. Us in sobriety also, when people are like, how are you? We're like, well, my meta feeling is. (laughs) My feeling about my feeling is this feeling. (laughs) How are you both today? Thrilled to be alive for the most part. What Mm -hmm. about you? Oh, fuck yeah. Um, This morning I woke up really sad, (laughs) but um, you know, it's, it's been nice. Rose, Rose arrived a little bit early so we could kind of hang out and get the setup going. And I'm, I'm actually really excited to be having this conversation because it's been a minute since we recorded. So generally also thrilled to be alive and, mm. and really excited to talk to you today. Great. That's cool. I'm excited too. We, 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 we. <laughs> so, Sita, you said a bit about that you, you work online and are you working back in person at the moment? I am not. So, um, I was having this conversation with a fair few counselor friends of mine as well who, you know, the great debate as to whether we go back into face-to-face counseling practice or not and when do we do that. Um, and I think with the, with the government guidelines that have recently come in again um, regarding kind of working from home, et cetera, I think it's at the moment I'm, n- I'm not going back to face-to-face as it stands. Um, I think it was it was a real transition for me to go into online only um 
it was definitely so it took took a while to get used to um I'm I wouldn't say I'm finding my feet or have found my feet but I'm definitely feeling more confident in um my own practice online I think I'm still missing that face-to-face energy the feel like sometimes my intuition is a little bit off and Mm -hmm. you know the things that come as sort of second nature and you know just picking up an energy you know that Mm -hmm. that's so difficult when it comes to online therapy and it's still something that isn't as present in the sessions um but it's navigating our way through it because at the moment there's a need for it there's a need for online therapy um you know I'm I'm basically kind of being driven by what my clients want you know and I will respond to that as and when um and at the moment I'm not hearing anything from clients about wanting to go back face to face so that therefore I'm staying online for the moment I've been back in in person therapy for probably like three months I think mm-hmm. since like around May and it it's the difference is really nice. It's nice to kind of have be back to back and kind of like physical space, but mm-hmm. I've been trying to get certified um, or at least start the path to certification as a Gestalt therapist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh I, yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. But I keep trying to find online programs that are like, we cannot teach this online. <laughs> you know, how can you, tr- how can you teach Gestalt online? There's just that, you know, it's so massive. You have to feel it. You have to be in it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, glorious <laughs> because I'm like, please, can you offer an online program? They're like, no, <laughs> stop asking. <laughs> it you know, there's something quite nice about that, though. There's something quite containing about that being a certainty of that that modality as well. That you know that you you can't compensate for that. You can't. They can't. You know, you can learn about potential theories online, but actually, the practice it it there's no replication for it. Hmm. Yeah, yes. super interesting. <laughs> so how do you find that that's kind of affecting your practice? Like, how are you kind of navigating that on a personal level? Um, well, day by day, right. <laughs> definitely day by day. I think there are some um, weeks, there are some days where I feel like I'm, you know, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm getting this. I'm on, you know, there've been some amazing sessions. There's been some amazing work going on. I'm not going to actually, um, diminish the work that's been done during this time because Mm. I think there's some incredible richness going on in the sessions um I think I'm personally navigating my transition into this this online world um and getting used to the fact that okay I'm not feeling the energies in the way that I used to but I'm still feeling I'm still feeling things and actually it's pretty amazing that once I kind of I suppose remove that barrier for myself and allowed myself to kind of enter into that I feel like there was a sense of kind of god well there's you know there's a there's a screen separating us I won't be able to feel anything mm-hmm. through this and once I started kind of exploring that and unpicking that in supervision I could feel I felt I'm, I'm feeling connection again and connectivity um just not in the way that I'm used to so it's it's the newness that I'm getting used to um not gonna lie at the beginning I was just like oh god I'm I'm awful I'm a shit practitioner I can't do this um I can't I couldn't there was a real lack of connection but then I realized it's something that's that you know is true in face-to-face therapy as well that you know if the client's getting something out of it they will come and they are they will stay you know they vote with their feet (laughs) um and so clients are clients are here clients are staying if they are finding value in the work then there is value in the work um whether it's online or face to face so it's kind of just 
navigating through that transition and kind of allowing myself to step into it fully. Yeah, mm. and perhaps now more than ever, you know, because yeah. it is like we are new. I think as a kind of society, we're learning a new modality for like how to connect through screens just because of the, the present reality. So it's cool to like explore and, and kind of unpack and disprove beliefs about what that means or how that feels. Absolutely. And I think that that's in its sense that we're kind of knocking the therapeutic world on its head a little bit. The idea, the notion that, oh, like, you know, any valuable work and good work can be done in a one-to-one setting in the same setting every week, you know, all that, all that we knew about the therapeutic world and how it worked, we're we're challenging that. And I'm, I'm quite enjoying that now, you know, the, Mm. the fact that, that there's really deep, meaningful work going on online and not necessarily all at the set you know that sometimes there isn't a regularity of weekly sessions at the same time same place you know there is flux in that and we work with that we we invite that and um it's providing a another richness another level of richness I think into the work and it's it's exciting I'm feeling I'm feeling excited about the work now not all it's not been the case the whole way through but it's starting to seep in and I'm starting to kind of feed that and nourish that that's excellent to hear just because it does sound like it's a it's a fulfilling experiment you know yeah um so how how did you exactly arrive at this point like how did you realize that psychotherapy was kind of your calling or your passion yeah that's it that's a good question um so I actually, I actually studied history as my first degree. Um, oh, wow. so, yes, yeah, so I've got a con- contemporary history, um, bachelor of arts, um, degree. And, um, you know, my first thought with that is that, okay, yes, I want to, I actually wanted to be a lawyer. So I wanted to, I wanted to then like, take the law conversion course afterwards, but you know, university got the better of me in the in the social side so I I had a great time (laughs) Um, and didn't quite get the grades and then to to kind of do law after that and I was like actually that's okay that's okay maybe maybe that's not for me Um, seems like a lot of effort um, (laughs) a lot of reading um, a lot of work Um, and then I actually I thought I was going to train to be a teacher so straight after university, I got a job in a secondary school, um, an all-girls secondary school in the suburbs. Um, that It was actually the secondary school that I went to. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, that was an experience in itself. Um, so I got a job there as a sort of behavioral assistant, sort of a mentor, um, to try and get some experience in schools before um, trying to kind of get onto a training course to train to be a teacher so I was there for a couple of years and throughout that time I realized that I was less interested in the teaching aspect of teaching and more interested in the connectivity Um, and especially being in a school like you know where the where reactions to behaviors were more punitive rather than explorative um I was just so interested in the why you know I was very I was um charged with um being in charge of the I suppose the exclusion room so when um students were perhaps being a bit disruptive in classes they'd be sent out and sent to me 
Exclusion specialist. Right. But then I I hated that in the sense that, you know, it was was meant to be a kind of deterrent for them to not come back. It was meant to be an awful experience. But I was like, I, I really wanted to reframe that. And I was just so interested in, you know, well, there's got to be a reasoning as to why you acted in the way you acted and why you behaved in the way you behaved and why your response was that, that, um, and, and I just loved opening up those conversations and it was that, that was, that was the turning point for me and realizing that, that, that was where I wanted to kind of go. I wanted to explore the why. Um, and actually I got, I got offered a training contract there to train as a, teacher and you know potentially have a job afterwards so there was a lot of security there for me to be able to take that um I remember asking for the weekend to think about it for the weekend to think about it being told that no one ever takes the weekend to think about something (laughs) and then there and then I knew so you know the Monday morning I went in and handed in my resignation nowhere to go nothing to do um but knew knew that that's what fundamentally that's not what I wanted um and then I moved to London. I, I got a job um, in another secondary school, again, as a behavioral assistant. It, this time it was an all boys secondary school in Camden, um, working particularly with um, with um, the students who were kind of gang affiliated. Um, and yeah, then started my first sort of postgraduate certificate in counseling and psychotherapy with the Tavistock and Portman Foundation in North London and then went on to do my um diploma I might and my master's um from that work whilst working part-time and yeah that's how I entered into it amazing bloody hell that's amazing (laughs) and how did that evolve into music therapy well, music has always been the love of my life. It's it's the one constant that I that has never failed to be there for me. Um, I've like sort of dipped in and out of that industry as well, um, sort of to varying levels. And um, there was a point, you know, where I realised that the the my love for this industry, my love, well, not necessarily the industry. My, there isn't a huge amount of love for the industry itself. <laughs> my love for this creative practice, um, my love for music and my passion for what I do, they can intersect. They can definitely mm. intersect. Um, but I suppose the tipping point came when when I, when I realized that I, I was taking from music without giving anything back especially in the world of streaming where essentially listening to music is free of course you know I was adamant that I go to gigs I pay for my for that the experiences I buy the merch I try to support the artists when when possible um but essentially the music that heals me at so many pivotal points in my life has been I've taken it and I can hear I can, I was I can remember just listening to the music that I loved and like hearing experiences and hearing pain hearing trauma and feeling like I potentially I could give something back mm-hmm. um that wasn't of monetary value but something that I could support offer a support and offer something um and I suppose that's where it evolved and so how did you make decisions to serve a specific population of musicians and creatives especially catering to people of color well you know being a person of color as well I 
knew that that's something that I always wanted to again have have that level of intersection with what I do so again this the three elements intersect I suppose music um serving sort of people of color and in 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 the form of sort of counseling and psychotherapy um and mental health support mm. um that's always been important to me and actually if I if I think about it in my in my sort of counseling career that has been the thread that's that's held everything together it's working with marginalized communities it's working within my own communities as well and trying to trying to sort of model that change and trying to model I suppose trying to break those stigmas that we have within the in certain communities and also you know statistically um those from sort of communities of color are less likely to um, take up mental health support yet have quite high levels of um, mental illness and unrest in, in, in them. So I think those disproportionate kind of facts and figures really kind of led me to think that, you know, there is definitely a need. Mm. For sure. I mean, I remember um, sharing a a panel with uh, Tamsin uh, Ableton. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we love very much. And, and just the st- statistics she was kind of reading off about, uh, the suicide rate among young men, especially yeah. in, uh, the music industry and touring industries was just crazy. Yeah. Um, and, and then I'm, you, like, and then you add like sort of, um, um, ethnic minority, ethnic background towards that as well. And the, the statistics grow even more, um, and to be honest, actually, I think my partner was a massive influence in that um, for me as well, in the evolution of music therapy. Um, we love he, that. <laughs> yeah, he's he is a black male in in the UK and is a musician, is is an artist and producer. And I looked at him and I just saw I saw the statistics and I was just, I was I was I was thinking I I I want to support, I want to be of service, I want to help. Um, and I think that was a really massive contributing factor into the evolution of um, music therapy and, and what it is today. Um, actually, the, the name music therapy came from him. Um, amazing. It, it was one of his first demos. Um, music therapy. Yeah. Um, and he, he, he played that to me. He showed, he showed me the name and I was like, that's it. Can I, uh, uh, yeah because we were thinking of names for like what what this could be what this what this organization could be called and you know nothing fit and then I had to go to him I was like nothing nothing works I just I can't get this out of my head mm. and he was like you know take it use it. it this is this is serving its purpose he's he's thrilled that actually it's it's going further than he ever thought it would as well so oh, um yeah <laughs> Um, and actually, out of curiosity, what was the kind of song or artist that made you kind of wake up or that kind of key you into the, the uh, stuff that was going on in terms of trauma and mental health? It was actually a lot of sort of um, UK grime music and um, hip hop music. So it was a it was a lot of the I could hit, feel the juxtaposition of this sort of quite hard, aggressive music about, you know, life on the streets and life life in London especially mm. um but through that you know you 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 remove that layer you remove that surface and you can hear trauma you can hear you can see that as being those 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 um those experiences that can come off as quite sort of macho and bravado and and quite 
I suppose, in your face that you, you take it away. And actually, those are experiences that can cause quite a lot of pain and mm. um, be very, very sort of pivotal in someone's life. Um, and yeah, that that that's kind of that's kind of where it, where I was hearing it a lot more. Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like <laughs> like every every kind of media I consume that's about any any of the things we, that we're discussing, like the only read as a result of like many years of therapy <laughs> and many years of recovery is like these people all need therapists and to go to AA. <laughs> <laughs> you watch like I May Destroy You, you watch like The Sopranos, you yep. watch like anything that you're just like, oh my God, everybody fucking needs therapy. Yeah. Um, and like like you were saying, there's not the stigma of even kind of seeking help in the, the spectrum of mental health can be really heavy. So it's really exciting that you're offering it explicitly. Um, what do clients come for you to you for specifically as a therapist or is it kind of across the board? Oh, it's across the board. There's so, there's so many reasons as to why someone might come to therapy. I often um, explain it as there's always going to be many, many reasons why anyone would enter therapy from past experiences, but there'll always be a precipitating factor, i.e. a trigger, a current life trigger mm. that brings past experiences into the present, consciously or un- or subconsciously. Um, so I think that that that's what it is in, in the most abstract of sense. It's always going to be a current trigger that brings up past experiences into the forefront. Um but sort of what those might entail might be, you know, a few things just to just to name but a few is the idea of identity, especially with people of colour and especially living in a in a very westernised kind of, again, I'm in London, so it's the UK, so white British um, population, what that means for them, especially if, you know, they're fat, fat, they're um, first generation, second generation here, what that means for them, they're their you know otherness as well as their Britishness as well as their you know them as being artists as well how do they all intersect so the identity and intersectionality that comes with their life as well um again as I said working through traumas and past experiences potentially feeling stuck in the present as well something that blockages and blocks um past experiences informing present decisions as I said and relationships and relating to others so not necessarily sort of just about um sort of um romantic relationships um but generally relationships and um and relating to themselves as well how they view themselves their own perception of selves their self-confidence their worth their value um what that is and exploring that and strengthening that as well um yeah (laughs) yeah awesome because I think it's also I I know I'm just realizing this and maybe you can also speak to this Rose that like especially right now with so much kind of coming up around like Black Lives Matter or Me Too or like the kind of present um the political climate of the world that there is a lot more like I know I'm experiencing a lot more um like evolution in as you were talking about like the sense of self and kind of how the self who the self is in the world you know and like the fact that it is it's a moving target yeah <laughs> like um that the work I know I do in therapy and perhaps you guys also is like super powerful and meaningful in a, in a really um like in an applied sense right because like there's 
on a daily basis, the kind, especially during a pandemic when like you're stuck kind of inside with your thoughts mm-hmm. and yourself, um, it is actually like important and, and helpful to be able to kind of talk about that with someone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I just think it's such a, I'm kind of nervous to talk about it. Honestly, I'm going to be real about that mm. because I think it's a delicate subject. And I think that as a white British woman, I have definitely been told a lot of things that you suddenly realize, you know, we have a lot of learning to do. Mm. Like, and it's a lot of quiet learning. It's not Mm -hmm. about me having a fucking opinion about it. Do you know what I mean? It's about me like going inside and reflecting. Mm. And so, yeah. It's It's a lot of, there's a, there are a lot of existential crises going on at the moment and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think it means it forces people to look inwards, like you said. And I think that's important, actually. Mm-hmm. And I think that reflection is necessary for growth. And often it's a quiet learning. It's not like, look at my learning online. Do you oh know what God, I mean? It's a so learning exhausting. that, you know, is very humbling. And I think a lot, you know, of the white privilege as a British woman that I have, I'm starting to realize I've never questioned. Mm. And and it's an, and it's a, it seems like the time, you know, it doesn't, it, it's not even the time. It's always been the fucking time, but there mm. has never been a more pressing time, yeah. I believe, that I need to take responsibility for that. So I'm just trying to do my part. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's great. That's great to hear that as well. And I think going back to what brought me into this um, profession as well, it's my curiosity over the why. And I think I would say that that's the most important letter in the alphabet. If everyone can just keep continuously ask why yeah. and not stop asking. So there's a, there's ex- the laddering exercise, right? You just, you know, you question something and then you question it again. Be that, be that annoying three-year-old child who continuously asks <laughs> but why, but why, but why we want that back in our society. Again, we want that back. We want that curiosity back because it leads to it leads to kind of exposure that we might have never kind of considered before. And also, but just being mindful of where we're having those conversations. I think um, I had a a very dis- uncomfortable situation all around a good few years ago when I first moved to Paris. And um, I thought I could speak to my friends of color about my white privilege. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I really learned like a really tough lesson. And I think it's also really important that like we acknowledge the correct spaces, like white women need to speak with other white privileged women about this. Do you know what I mean? And not go to our friends of color and be like, so can you tell me how to, it's like, this is not helpful. Do you know what I mean? So that's why I say I'm nervous about it because I'm, I'm I'm actually the (laughs) course correct with that word. I'm like mindful of it. You know, I try to be more mindful about where I have that conversation and, and not go to my friends of color and expect them to take more responsibility than they already fucking have on their shoulders, you know, to suddenly be like the expert at teach. You just tell me how I need it. It's like, no, I need to go off and do the work with my, my white sisters. Right. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's also acknowledging those differences, right. That actually not every forum is the right place to talk about Absolutely. it. Um, you know, I then I, I've, I work on my own, um, sort of standing as well as you know being an Indian um woman in British woman first generation and how yes there there are levels that I face but also there's a there's 
an incredible privilege that's come with that as well. Um, the idea of being the good immigrant, the model immigrant mm-hmm. um, as well, and having to kind of really dismantle that um, and work with that. So using the fact that I am a person of color to break down some barrier, but also acknowledging that we're not, it's not all the same as well. Right. <laughs> yeah. There's so many, you can't, I can't just go, you know, and just be like, well, I'm just going to speak to somebody I know of the ethnic minority and discuss this. It's like, right. No. no. <laughs> even like, that I, even the idea of a kind of talking about person of color or BAME or there's, there's so many sort right. of acronyms of things, which realistically I'm uncomfortable with them all, but, mm-hmm. um, it's it's a way to kind of show I suppose where you work and how you work but um again it's you know it's still categorizing everyone every every othered person in in the same bracket which there's something just inherently wrong about that absolutely (laughs) I mean again I I feel like it's on my place to comment on that do you know what I mean Mm. like um I don't feel I feel like it's weird it always feels wrong do you know what I mean like it feels really wrong to be like personal color minority it's like but again it's not for me to be like changing that do you know what I mean no but it's the it's a language that we've we've been taught as well and you know how where our language is so important and how we how we Mm. kind of communicate that so unless that kind of evolves then we're limited by that. We look at that in, in you know, if you talk about the the LGBTQI plus communities, you know, mm. it's, you know, there's there's a lot of um, sort of um, commentary about, you know, whether all of the the letters in in those acronyms were were ever present um or are they are they new ways of people thinking and being well my no. argument with that is that no it's just that language has evolved we've got more ways of describing that and i think that's the kind of approach i take to the idea of sort of people of color ethnic minorities mm. black asian ethnic minorities all of that kind of um catch all phrases you know language needs to catch up Absolutely. And I, I find I notice my judgment around that because like, as being, being the B in the LGBTQI plus and being in a hetero marriage, I'm always just like, the B's not loud enough. Like, yeah. <laughs> more, you know, and then kind of being judgmental around people's like, well, you didn't say plus cute. And you're just like, everyone's just really giving it a good shot, aren't they? Do you know yeah. what I think? I'm like dropping my judgment because it's just not helpful. Well, yeah. yeah. And I think on the internet, it can be really easy to kind of call each other out for like, (laughs) like maybe if I call out somebody else loud enough, nobody will see my insecurity in this area. But this whole idea of like, I'm not here to be right. I'm here to learn as the kind of mantra of like, all I want to do is learn. Like, I'm open. Please teach me. Um, And and let me keep evolved like with it. Yeah. Or like, let me help educate myself. So (laughs) it can be less of a fucking burden. Um, and it's about wanting to visibility and wanting to be seen. I think that's what it boils down to, isn't it? Which, yeah, I mean, I guess if we can help each other, you know, like if we can help see each other, then then we're do- we're doing our best, you know. Absolutely. 
Um, so to kind of like loop back to the, the conversation about your practice, we were curious as if you were, you were seeing any specific sexual dilemmas facing the populations that you serve. Like I know for me as a touring musician, like the travel previously touring, <laughs> um, the travel and the time apart could be really hard on a relationship or like, I know when I'm single, it felt kind of like un- out of control and like, um, especially as a sober woman, it could felt kind of unsafe uh-huh. or boundless to like seek sex. Um, mm-hmm. so I know that again, you're, you're dealing with like, um, musicians and creatives. Is there, are there anything, are there, <laughs> sorry, edit. Uh, are there any specific dilemmas facing, um, your clients that you kind of see as a, a part of this, the lifestyle of being a musician? Um, I think at the moment what I'm seeing is a lot of disconnection and lack of intimacy and that's not necessarily linked to sex you know I work with couples as well so um, within that intimacy is the top thing it's you know it's it's a it's a it's how we've grown up to believe what what intimacy is and what it should be and shouldn't be you know the idea that intimacy is you know is is inherently linked to sex 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 and sexuality and being Mm. sexual um but actually that's that's the smallest part of intimacy I would I would argue um Mm. And there's a there's a real disconnect with that, and I think that's that's the main thing that I'm working with and and feeling. Um, it's reconnection and and navigating that what that means for each individual, and that means reconnection with self as well. Sort of mm. what you know, what is their relationship to themselves? As I said earlier, that that's probably the first port of cause is reconnecting with yourself, and then how then can you connect with someone else? um and what does intimacy look like how do you feel when you know you catch a gaze of someone or you catch a gaze of yourself in the mirror how Mm. connected do you feel to yourself you know does that feel intimate Mm. um yeah yeah. that's so beautiful I I really feel like this whole question around intimacy and not just the sex section because I think we often get them confused um is is really deeply political actually like this idea that I might catch a gaze of myself and give myself space and time as a woman specifically, mm. that's my lens I'm wearing with that. And then like how that informs my, informs my couple and my relationship, mm-hmm. you know, um, it changes it so goddamn much. I've done a lot of this work in the mm. family Al-Anon program. We talk a lot, a lot, a lot about self-care being an obligation, not a, not necessarily just something like, okay, let's get my nails done. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like literally so much deeper than that. It's about whilst I keep the focus on myself, how how do I show up yeah. in unity better, you know? Yeah. And like I feel like the intimacy question around that is especially in times of trauma. And I think I think the the COVID COVID nineteen has I mean and continues to be a real trauma, right, for a lot of people. Like I know for me in any traumatic situation, my initial response is to negate self. Like mm-hmm. that's just mm-hmm. what I do. Mm-hmm. And I work on that, you know, but do you have any helpful insights as to how like that stormy sea of intimacy might be navigated? Well, I think it's about acknowledging what's important. Right. And I, it's an exercise I'm doing it with actually pretty much every one of my clients at the moment. And that says a lot about how, you know, this, I've got clients from different walks of life in different capacities, and this is applicable to everyone, myself included. I feel like 
part of my work is to um, practice what I preach as well. <laughs> um, not the best at doing that, but um, it's the pillar exercises. So, you know, if you think of a like a Roman front forum, like the front of a Roman building, um, mm-hmm. these big, strong, thick pillars, and that being our essence of life. But I always say to my clients, the one non-negotiable pillar, which is actually a bracket, so it runs vertical as a pillar on its own right, but also is the foundation for every other pillar to stand on, is your relationship to yourself oh my and God. how you feel about yourself. And that includes, you know, your self-care, your what you do for yourself to keep yourself well. And that, that can be you know having a bath doing your nails but it can also be you know treating yourself with compassion the way you speak to yourself the narrative you tell yourself you know the life that you know how do you recall your experiences and do you shine a light on yourself more positively in those experiences or not and if not how do we reframe those those experiences that feel more compassionate towards yourself and that is yeah that's a pillar in its own right but it is a fundamental foundation for all the other pillars without that without you without you nothing else would exist you are the constant in your own life so that that is that's I suppose that's that's very essence and I think a lot of the work I do is about owning that ownership of that and and sort of empowering people to kind of put that as a priority gosh that's so incredibly moving the way you articulated that I love that and also just not this self-care isn't this kind of thing that the media are selling us it's not capitalism it's (laughs) it's not it's not a Cosmo article 10 10 ways to improve your self-care that's not really that can be helpful it's more that's more sort of um it's confusing yeah I think it's deeply confusing and I think I've I really I get I find myself getting distracted with like buying into it sometimes I'm like nah (laughs) like this is so and then having compassion for self for buying into something that Mm. is like a person who's figuring all this shit out because as carers as therapists as coaches as giving loving people which everyone deeply is on some degree like we often like you said forget to practice what we preach Mm. (laughs) you know and yeah I'm very moved by what you shared and I think it's about it's about self-soothing, right? So those experiences of what we what the what we package up as self-care, what the 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 media marketing of self-care is, that's self-soothing, and that's mm. great. You know, we need both. We need to acknowledge when we are self-soothing and when we are engaging in those self-soothing activities mm. to realize, well, okay, there's something within us true. that needs to be nourished that, that that we now need to perhaps step that up and on a fundamental level if I'm self-soothing this much i.e working through that list of 10 of in this article then what do I need to do fundamentally to create more of a sustainable change in my life that means that I can lessen my self-soothing techniques you know um it's about the small little five minute things that you can do daily I would say you know anyone can do everything in one day for a day you know (laughs) Totally. right if we put our minds to it but that's right. not sustainable it's taking the like five minutes a day to do something that can fit in and be integrated into your life I always say like with breathing for instance um a lot of my clients are just like oh god I don't want to do 20 minutes of sitting down and just having to breathe but I say well <laughs> breathing is really important I say well you know what do you do when you put the kettle on and they say well I, I stand and wait for the kettle to boil I'm like well that's a perfect time three minutes breathe 
three minutes, breathe, and it's integrated into your life. It doesn't need to be this big, arduous task, right? (laughs) It's something that it's got to work for you, and it's whatever that may be. As long as you can integrate it into your life, then it's so much more worthwhile. Mm. Well, and like you were saying, the kind of big issue being intimacy with self and intimacy with others, it's like if I'm neglecting to kind of take that time, and it's, it's, a, it's a kind of double-edged sword, right? Like mm. if I'm neg- neglecting to take the time to kind of check in with self and to kind of not only self-soothe, but to kind of create the foundation of a healthy relationship with myself, then it's going to be difficult for me to actually know how I'm doing. <laughs> and on the other side, it's like, and if I don't really know how I'm doing, then why would I take the time? Yeah, you know, it's a, um, it's tricky. And I also, you know, kind of moving into our next, like question, it's, it's interesting that you say that, because this last few weeks, I've been had, had multiple gigs, like planned, and then canceled and planned and then canceled kind of last minute, of course, Mm -hmm. with pandemic stuff going on. And I realized that like, without, I I feel like I'm having another spiritual awakening at this point, like it, it, this last few months, as, as a direct result of not touring. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, because I, there's just like space to feel feelings. Yeah. And there's not the kind of re-traumatization of like getting on a plane and having to like cut off from the part of me that's having panic attack. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, so I'm curious as to kind of, is, is the pandemic changing your conversations within your occupation? Like the problems, especially relationally might be the opposite, right? If there was too much time apart or traveling before, now it might be like, and all the time together. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. problem. Um, so can you speak to this and how you can help, how you actively help your clients kind of work through this stuff yeah so I suppose for me the thing that the 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 word that comes to mind is confrontation right in in the in the sense that we are being (laughs) I don't like confrontation (laughs) we're just Uh, easing up right now she's (laughs) currently in a ball the confrontation in the most sort of I suppose purest of senses that we are confronted with things that we have been masking or hiding or being in denial from and I think you know there's been so much around the pandemic there's confrontation of our sort of humanity and fragility of our of life but then there's confrontation of you know what we're feeling you know so often you know that we we distract ourselves with the busyness of life and daily sort of things going on and we 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 don't have the time or space to necessarily sit with our feelings and, mm. and really feel what we're feeling we can we can abstractly and sort of surface level say oh yeah no i'm feeling this but actually strip away what we're saying do you really viscerally feel that do you mm. are you viscerally feeling what you've just said you're feeling mm. and actually now that's the time this is the time i'm really here i'm really feeling that um and that that people are being confronted with the things that that have always been there, but just there's not been space for them to kind of explore explore that. Excuse me. And I think the this this space, whilst incredibly difficult, has has led to an opportunity for openness and being able to explore that and um, and really confront that. And you know, it's these it's the rupture and repair moments I talk about that actually you you confront whatever's going on for you um so that it kind of it does the it creates this mound in the ground it explodes a little bit but then it repairs and once that once it settles it, you can build on it right mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You let it, you let it, you let you, there's a release that comes from it. And, and, you know, that can be within couples, within relationships as well, that actually you're spending a lot of time together. So it brings, it brings issues to the table. It brings issues to the surface that you can't hide from. And, um, you know, whatever movement comes from that, it's ultimately always going to be, it might, there, there might be difficult movements within that, but ultimately movement is better than, feeling stuck and in the same place. Mm. Mm. Totally. So, yeah. Totally, totally. And I love the way you put that, the rupture and repair, like, because you can't really build anything on the, like, the weird hill that's suddenly formed in your backyard, right? Yeah, you need to smooth things out a little bit first, and then that might mean getting getting the crap out from underneath. Mm. I love that. That's really powerful. So... (laughs) Change tact. Now about sex. And pivot and pivot. What were some of the early messages you received personally around sex and sexuality? Oh, okay. Um we're going there. Um oh wow, sex wasn't really talked about at all growing up. I grew up in quite a shielded Indian household. So, you know, talking about sex was not the done thing and you know, messages around sex and sexuality were always associated with like embarrassment or shame or like, you know, I remember just just almost hearing, um, I remember hearing that, you know, um, Backstreet Boys, I want it that way. Oh, not, oh, not Backstreet Boys, everybody even. And, you know, <laughs> Nick Carter screaming, am I sexual? And like <laughs> me trying to sing to that and then like, am I? Not wanting to even say that um so things like that or you know uh I just it just just felt like I I could I could feel myself even blushing now thinking about me back then um and it was interesting because it because it also felt quite lonely it felt quite isolating to kind of have a sexual journey and feel like I wasn't able to kind of look around and express, you know, I grew up, you know, my mom, my dad, my two and two older brothers. Um, and one of my older brothers, I didn't know at the time was going through his own sort of sexual exploration in terms of his own sexuality. So I just, I I didn't really have anywhere to turn and growing up in quite a white British area as well. I felt I didn't, I didn't really know, who to turn to what to and how to talk about sex. Um, so it felt quite lonely and it, it wasn't really until my twenties that I started to explore who I was as a sexual being kind of stepping into that path, talking more openly about it and, and really learning to sit with those feelings of discomfort rather than run away from them. Mm. Um, trying to really dismantle that conditioning regarding conversations about this. Mm. Um, yeah. What does that look like? um well I definitely remember in my late 20s t- taking my mom out for lunch and asking her about her sex life with my dad <laughs> at the oh time and I was crying inside I was like literally I knew that I, I felt like I had to do it because I wanted to kind of open up a conversation with my mom like you know I wanted to relate to her not just as you know a child to adult relationship and model but I wanted it to, to be an adult to adult conversation um rather than child to parent sorry and you know, I wanted to see what her sexual experiences were like and had been like, um, 
But oh my goodness, I can remember, I can always, I can feel that discomfort coming back to me now, just sitting there crying on my head, being like, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Um, How did she respond? Pretty openly, actually, o- more open than I thought she was. You know, she was like, oh God, why are you, why are you talking, why are you asking me this? You know, oh what's God. going on? But then she, she kind of, um, she kind of, she kind of shocked me. She was like, well, no, you know, I'm, I think I would want it now, but you're, you know, your father's arthritis and this, that and the other. So might prevent us from, you know, having it now. And I just, you know, I could hear her discomfort as well, but that was further than we'd ever gotten before. So, um, yeah, it was kind of dismantling that and being able to kind of speak a bit more freely about it, especially in the communities that I grew up in as well. You know, the South Asian community, so guarded about these things. And, you know, um, these experiences are f- then associated with such, as I said, shame and embarrassment. And I really just, I just, I was done with it. I didn't want to feel that about my, about the experience and as a consequence about myself because we are we are we are related to that experience and those experiences Hmm. we are sexual we are sexuality we are sex as well you know so if I was feeling shame and embarrassment about those experiences what did that Hmm. say about how I was feeling about myself and I just didn't want to feel like that Hmm. yeah awesome so how did that kind of um I guess growing out of old ideas around sex and kind of trying to like very intentionally transform your relationship with sex and sexuality, um, eventually inform your decision to work with Sash in London. Can you, and can you tell us about your experience there? Yeah. So that was a really conscious decision to want to work within that field as well. You know, I really wanted to model that idea that it was okay to talk about sex and foster that openness within the communities that I, that I served. Um, And I think really having an Indian therapist working in a sexual health organization breaks down so many barriers and can start to address stigma, not only, you know, within sexual health, but mental health as well. So it was kind of a a catch all for that. Um, So I felt very privileged to be in that position. Um, You know, I suppose also my brother's experiences really informed my decision to do that, to work there as well. And his experience of growing up gay in a community where sexuality and all its forms of expression is just not addressed and actively pushed against you know yes we're in Britain and as British Asians we might fit there might be a level of um I suppose assimilation but um you know we can't we can't forget that up until you know um homosexuality has is only recently been decriminalized in in india and actually those those so so immigrants um it, british immigrants who've come to the uk you know there's an element of wanting to i've seen this as well in in clients and, and people i've worked with as well that there's an element of wanting to hold on to because they're not in mm. their home, motherland it's wanting to hold on to traditions and culture even more so so actually pushing that those bounds even more so um, in a certain sense and I think I just really wanted to address that and Mm -hmm. um, you know create a safe space um, to work within those um, experiences and I think Sash offered me that I was able to work with you know people from varying um, sort of cultural backgrounds about sex and intimacy um, but then also I worked, I worked with sex workers sort of um, navigating how they felt about sex and their own bodies and their disconnection and connection um, 
and sort of perhaps exiting the profession as well. Um, and, you know, working again with those who um, were engaging in chemsex as well and navigating sobriety and mm-hmm. what that meant for them as well. Um, so, I, it, yeah, it was a very privileged position and the work, the work that, the work again was incredibly rich and incredibly, it was life-changing working there actually. That sounds incredible. And I mean, also like what you were talking about in terms of like being in a really unique position um, to, to be able to serve a specific population, like the, the kind of through line between like um, your upbringings until music therapy sounds, it's like, Oh, we see, we see the arc. That's really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. So thinking about um performative sexuality for artists or mm-hmm. um how does being on all the time, whether playing a persona on stage or on social media, affect our ability to have intimate connection? Again, I'm going back to that same thing that I've been saying, that relationship and perception of ourselves. You know, we're seeing, you know, you as an artist perhaps who has that persona that they step into, they then see themselves through that lens as well. So there's a disconnect between their their persona and their authentic selves, mm. Mm. you know, and it's navigating how how can those both coexist without diminishing one another how can you have your persona and step into that without diminishing your authentic self like do you mean for like imposter syndrome and things like that um but the other way around as well right so how can your persona like the the artist that you step into how can you create that and have that and feel like you know it can be the opposite so but then how can you step into your authentic self without feeling like an imposter in your right. authentic life, you know, right. I, I often see that in the other way around. Right. You mean yeah. like, so how, how can you feel authentic in yourself without your persona? Right. Right. Stepping into like authentic self. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. I'm repeating what you said, but how to kind of reframe it into like, how do these parts um, inform each other in a way that's kind of like robust and healthy as opposed to just being like, <laughs> like turning into a super villain. Whatever yeah. You <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Hmm. And I think there's, there's a lot to be said. Um, so especially with, um, gender roles and socio-normative ideas that create these narratives in terms of you know if you think about the idea of a sort of a, a persona and performative sexuality where does that who does that kind of affect most mm. and why and what what are the narratives around that that idea of sexual desire and actually you know does a a female identifying performer have to tap into their sexual desire more in their persona than a male identifying performer and why that why is that the case and sort of trying to dismantle that as well oh man it's interesting like during before we were recording I was having a conversation with my partner about like how the male gaze dictates what's um like acceptable and not acceptable. There was mm-hmm. a famous French actress, Beatrice Dove, who apparently had like said she's in her fifties now and, um, you know, has been drinking and doing drugs her whole life. So doesn't look like the kind of Angelina Jolie nymph of her youth. And mm-hmm. she had openly said that like, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm unashamedly into sadomasochism. And, and then she got a ton of like, uh, 
negative feedback on the internet because it's like, what, what if somebody who did look like she did look 20 years ago had said that, would it have been as negative? Right. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. like, how does the, how does society dictate, especially for women, like what's acceptable or not acceptable, or I guess not even women. What's cute. Like, yeah, what's cute and sexy. Yeah, like, like très mignon. Like, there's this whole thing in France about being mignon, like cute and like fucking digestible. Oh, yeah. And it's really interesting. <laughs> you can tell Louise. I'm really about it. <laughs> but like, moving to France is like a brick because we have like a Ladek culture in the UK, which I was all too familiar with. And then moving here and kind of being that here and getting told by other women, like, Sweetheart, you're being a bit naff. You're being a bit much. Can you like fucking super tone it down? And I was like, what? What? Mm, Yeah. This is this is me. (laughs) Like, what do you mean tone it down? (laughs) And so I guess to kind of to use that as a springboard, like, do you observe for your clients or I mean even for yourself? Like I think that everybody's kind of in the public eye all the time with social media. Like, yeah. How does that change one's relationship to their body or appearance? And how does that affect uh, one's ability to feel like embodied sexually? Yeah, I feel like that, again, massive disconnect with that in the fact that, you know, there's this, we're in this comparison era where, you know, we look at ourselves and then put ourselves and pin ourselves against, you know, 20 other people on the internet um, and, you know, diminish our own selves based on what they're what we're seeing in others and what is you know what's trendy right now um and and it does it it creates that barrier to I suppose essentially loving ourselves and accepting ourselves and then if we aren't able to do that then how can we if we don't see ourselves as being sexual and desirable if we don't look at ourselves and say you know I desire myself how are we able to feel confident enough that we are desired by others as well and be able to tap into that? And I think, um, yeah, social media has a massive part to play in that and just being in the public eye and having that constant kind of being at the mercy of what other people think. Um, we've always been at the mercy, I suppose, in that in that way because at some level, you know, think about the fashion industry, we are dictated to yeah. um, by that. I always talk about buying jeans and how I find it every few years I find it impossible because I just suddenly I suddenly get to a store that you know fits me perfectly you know quite I'm not I'm yeah fits me in the thighs fits me in the waist fits me in the bum fits me everywhere and then suddenly a couple of years later that store changes their fit of jeans based on what's norm so now yeah might fit me in the thighs might fit me in the bum but won't fit me in the waist because the the trend now is you know to have the tiny little waist but the big big everything else mm-hmm. and so what 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 am i what 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 um commentary am i going to tell myself about that what am i going to say what do i say to myself about that what's the narrative around that do i actively you know if i wasn't so aware of what i feel like that the fashion industry is responding to um that might create a narrative for me saying well obviously these things don't fit so I need to be a different way in order mm. for this to fit for you know we're, we're being dictated to and I think it's just so much more apparent now or not necessarily apparent there's just so many more avenues in which we are being told how to be oh my how God. to look yeah no right before this um I was <laughs> like 
spamming Rose's text messages because I was listening to um, The Body is Not an Apology, that uh, Sonia Renee-Taylor idea of like body bodily hierarchy and how like the you know thin white rich muscular able-bodied uh perfect skin perfect hair perfect Mm -hmm. everything you know like this is what we're told we need to be in order to be lovable and like Mm -hmm. what if we unsubscribe what if we consciously divest Mm -hmm. from this being like the accept the thing that i need to be in order to be acceptable even to myself like what Mm -hmm. happens to capitalism then yeah (laughs) but it's like the the the, there was there was there was this bit there was this um photo that all like this kind of series of photos that was like circulating a while back about you know how one image was photoshopped to the beauty standards for different countries um and how one photo you know they went all the way around the world there were about at least sort of 30 different countries 20 20 or 30 different countries and every image was so vastly different so actually that kind of is like you know there's not one ideal there's we're not a a take there's no when we really sit when it really showed me that when you when you see it in black and white like that how we can't be everything there's always it's all subjective so once we kind of um acknowledge that and see that can we just pause the dogs kicking off it's all right okay sorry about that no problems (laughs) (laughs) so yeah once we acknowledge that that we you know we can't conform to everyone's beauty standards because it's so different around then you know part of me just says like you know fuck it I'll I'll conform to my own beauty standards which are kind of dictated by me Mm. bloody hell oh my god I wish I could just hit this unsubscribe button guys (laughs) yeah I know where is that (laughs) how do we know it's more about how do we create that for ourselves it's not about where is it because then that's the onus on someone else having to create that for our for us so how do we create that for ourselves Jaw is dropping, see, Tal. <laughs> We're talking about this like, coming kind of coming from a place of like being constantly sexualized or kind of having to put out a very specific kind of energy in order to be commercially viable, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But like, as you know, you work with creators and performers, and you're you're serving a specific population. Like, maybe there's an inherent ability for this kind of erotic energy that could kind of be capitalized upon by a bigger market like how do we how do we flip that on its head and create kind of powerful sex magic (laughs) i suppose use use creativity to amplify and enhance what we're going through right i think that's applicable to any any sort of experience so you know if someone is feeling like they're able to tap into their sexuality and desirability how does that how does that translate into their creativity um and I think it can be incredibly powerful and incredibly encouraging to others as well listening to that and feeling that because that type of energy and and connection isn't just isn't isn't sort of a visual thing I think we need to remove that visual element as well at times it's what you're feeling through the music I always um refer to um Fleetwood Mac about that because I always refer to Lindsay Buckingham and Stevie Nicks and their sexuality and sensuality coming through their music and I felt that before I even knew who they were before they you know that I didn't I listened to their music before any sorts of videos and things like that so and you could feel that you could feel this 
the, the, I could always say with Lindsay Buckingham's guitar playing, I could always feel his sexuality and sensuality mm. through the, his guitar, how, mm. his relationship with his instrument as well. Um, mm. And, you know, more sort of recent examples, I always think of like sort of Jill Scott mm. and how she, her performative... Yeah magic um that you know creates ripples and waves and conversation you know I think that's an important part of it as well what does it trigger in terms of conversation about sexuality and sensuality um and yeah I think I think I think it can be incredibly powerful and harnessed and amplified um so yeah I don't, I don't know where I was going with that, but yeah, that's awesome. Because yeah. I do think it is like what you were saying to be able to feel it, and not just see it. Yeah, like that's really fascinating. Mm. But like, I'm curious as to like you you mentioned Fleetwood Mac and Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks, who are like they freaks. They definitely like stuck. Yeah, I mean, but I love them. <laughs> they did. They did sex magic, literally, metaphorically, all types of ickleys. <laughs> <laughs> hell yes rose i'm curious as to like what you're when you think about like sex magic done on, on the kind of either like on a performative level okay well, well i think my first like use is that like my first experience with that was like pre-social media pre like mm-hmm. i didn't grow up with the tv either mm-hmm. so it was very much based on like when i was younger i had a lot of crushes on girls mm-hmm. and so this is going to sound really strange, but Rob Smith from The Cure, there mm-hmm. was something like in his music and The Cure that would, I don't know, there was something about like the queer delivery of his ambiguous lyrics and mm-hmm. music, which was so deeply like sex magic for me. Yeah. Like I just had this poster of Rob Smith on my wall. And he was, my my mum just coming in and being like, who the fuck is this? (laughs) He's real fucked and twisted looking in that picture. And I was like, I'm in love with him. My boyfriend, (laughs) girlfriend, slash everything friend, you know? And and I didn't, and I wasn't on YouTube looking at videos. It was deeply just like spoke to a side of me, which I wasn't able to communicate. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes it isn't all just visual either. Like, you know, it's really, we strip away from that. You know, it's the vibrations and frequencies it's the notes that you use like take away even any of the artists it's about the music itself as well mm. think about how you feel when you hear a really heavy bass line where does mm. it vibrate through you does it vibrate up in your shoulders no it goes down lower into your mm. abdomen down into your pelvis you can feel it there mm. so you know it's about the mu- the musicality as well um and and the specific um, I suppose composition of music as well. What about you, Lou? Um, I mean, <laughs> on brand. I uh, I remember like seeing the video for Closer from Nine Inch Nails mm-hmm. when I was like nine. No, I had to be younger than that. I was a young kid, and I remember it just like scared the shit out of me. But I remember feeling like, oh, like whatever's going on here is really exciting. But I'm so scared of it. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. I that. But then I think now it's like if I want to think about feeling kind of like feeling my power, like connecting to my Mm. like visceral kind of embodied, especially for performative, because I feel like my performative sexuality is very Mm -hmm. different than my actual Mm. erotic sensibility. Mm -hmm. Then I will watch Beyonce's homecoming at Coachella. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Look at her. She is amazing. 
like that's somebody who fucking like knows she yeah. has power and I'm like I want to know I have power like yeah feel that mm-hmm. so I think it's mm-hmm. um it's kind of across the spectrum because it can be different right it can be like the in- introverted and extroverted mm-hmm. um energies can be really kind of broad but at the same time like I think it's a cool um in like a personal technology to be able to access both Mm-hmm. you know like what makes me feel sexy for my partner in our in our dynamic or what makes me feel sexy to, when I get on stage like those are mm-hmm. two really different mm-hmm. and what makes me feel sexy for me yes yeah Mental. That's Make a tough it, one. forget <laughs> about everyone else you know how how do I feel sexy for myself how do I show up for myself in that sec- in in the sexiness I suppose I mean but that one is like that like when you talk about self-intimacy like that one is really intense right yeah like the messaging uh, you have to really flush the messaging of one's entire life about like what is what is sexy as a woman like me down the toilet you know yeah I think I'm only just starting to kind of like peek over the mountain of that of like yeah what, she's doing an impression like? of a mayor cat right now my <laughs> <laughs> knuckles are by my chin and I'm peeking <laughs> yeah and it's again removing the visuals. It's like not necessarily what do I feel sexy when I look in the mirror? Okay, yeah, that's one aspect, but do I feel sexy? Take away all the mirrors. Like mm. do I feel sexy in in how I'm how I'm sort of presenting? Do I feel pre- sexy in who I am? Mm. Embodied. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. So to get a little more intimate, Ooh. do you find <laughs> that the work you do with clients informs your own sexual evolution? <sighs> I, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it would. I think I, I, I think how could it not? Right. Mm-hmm. I think um, <laughs> to put it bluntly, like my, my work with my clients informs me as a person full stop. I learn from my clients so much um it it confronts me with a a practicing what I preach um and trying to model you know how can I have conviction in what I'm saying if I haven't sort of embodied it and tried Mm -hmm. it myself and worked through it myself but you know especially working at Sash and having worked there it really helped me connect with myself sexually and um explore myself and explore explore connection with others and um you know really get to know who I am and what I want and how I suppose it really it helped me explore my pleasure as well it helped me really explore pleasure and put that at the forefront as well of my kind of sexual experiences and be quite unapologetic for that as well fuck Mm. yes (laughs) (laughs) so um like so we often ask on this show, like, what is one, what is your sex idea? Like, mm-hmm. who do you want to show up as an intimate or uh, sexual relationships? Um, and I, yeah, I think that, oh, yeah. Um, I suppose I'll keep this one short, but sweet. But I think I'd, I would, I would like to and try to and w- actively work on showing up as being confident in my vulnerability. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> that's so beautiful really beautiful. yeah really yeah beautiful. trying to embody that and so try to kind of work with the vulnerability because yeah and being confident in that how are you how are you growing in that today um actively working on that i.e um trying to let down my barriers and not not necessarily sort of break down the idea of what confidence is mm. um so 
you know the idea of jumping on a on a body and like being the posi- in the posi- in you know classic positions of power sexual positions of power being dominant being active like allowing myself into to step into passivity mm. um because again that 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 is vulnerability that that is a very vulnerable position to be in and being okay with that and you know that takes work um really? but it's also yeah. le- learning to listen to my body so learning to listen to it but also learning to trust it because you know my as we know the the body stores a hell of a lot more the body remembers more than the mind does in that sense you know our minds are incredibly powerful and you know can 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 shut off things that we don't quite want to remember want to acknowledge um so there's a level of dissociation that goes on but our body knows that so our body, that's what dissociation is you know where there's a dis- dissonance between our mind and our body um and you know, learning to trust that our body knows what it's talking about as well. That's so interesting that you separate like, um, no, like paying attention to how my body feels and then actually trusting it Yeah, (laughs) because like, there's like the, the, I think there's definitely a stage in the journey. I don't know if you guys have experienced it where I'm like, I can feel my feelings in my body. I know it. Yeah. But we ignore it. Yeah. And thank you for sharing. I'm going to do what I want to do. Now. Yeah, yeah. We ignore it. So it's I'm I'm trying to ignore my body less. Oh, beautiful. So I think that's that's what it is. <laughs> mm, that's gorgeous. Oh. So let's skip into the lightning round. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> the lightning round is um as it is, lightning. Okay. <laughs> it's fire. It's fire. It's just generally spiky and spicy. So what is on your bedside table right now? Um, a box of tissues, a lamp. Uh, I keep my bedside table quite clear, actually. Um, but inside the drawer, there's some yeah. vibrators, necessary, yeah. okay. so, and some lube. So, yeah. <laughs> same, same, same. <laughs> Tell us about a time you laughed super hard. Uh, pretty, last night at some dog videos on Instagram. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Who's your favorite sex magic practitioner? <laughs> it could be an act. Like, I, I mean, it could be your partner, but it could be like, who do you see in the public eye that you're like, damn, like they're doing oh sex shit. <laughs> it could be my partner, but I feel like I'm not going to say my partner. Like, sorry. <laughs> but, um, ooh. do you know what I'd say? I'd say childish Gambino. Um, I, as childish Gambino, you know, um, I don't know. I know this is a lightning round, but you know his 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 his. Um, it's just there's, there's an element of wildness about him, and like um, it's quite. Um, I've forgotten the word now, but it's 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 tapping into that animalistic kind of sense. There's a there's a there's a rawness about him, especially in in his later kind of work now, where he is just embodying who he is. You know, the shirt off, the hair, the beard, the chest, the everything. It's just yeah. it feels it feels like he's stepping into who he is and being quite unapologetic about it and kind of breaking down those those norms as well. So I I love that and I feel like that definitely does something for me. Fuck yes, and that little pot belly. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I love that you take your top off with a pot belly. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm curious as to yours, Rose. Mine? Yeah. Now? Lightning round. Fuck, <laughs> shit. 
Fuck. God damn it. <gasps> uh, I probably Kendrick Lamar, honestly. Yeah. Salad. I mean, he does something to me. There's this video live of him and Beyonce doing mm-hmm. Freedom. And if I need to fucking like release <laughs> that, like not release, I'm not talking like get myself off, but I'm like oh talking God. like just like be in my body and feel powerful. Mm-hmm. I want that. And there's something about his performance specifically that is mm-hmm. so intentional mm-hmm. that brings me into presence. Wow. Mm-hmm. What about yours, Lou? Great question. Now that I've grilled you guys on <laughs> Yeah, you both. <laughs> um, that's weird. Because it's like, remember, I think we had a, we had a, we did lightning round with Gina Turner and it was like, what's your celebrity crush? And this is a different question. Oh yeah, mine was like, like Alan Rickman. <laughs> <laughs> Weirdly, who's your twin? Who's your celebrity twin flame? Yeah, (laughs) you're like Alan Rickman for sure. And um, yeah, it's weird because I'm like, what performers am I like? Ooh, hi. Mm. (laughs) Um, huh, fascinating. No idea. Uh, I feel like Woody Harrelson. (laughs) Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, you're like a super freak, (laughs) yes. into it and he owns everything in hemp he held boozy i've got what? a dog called little boozy oh. he held my baby yeah would well, you remember when they sent a car for me and the dog no okay well in hunger games they were filming Clearly in paris not. <laughs> this is an old story they sent a car because they love my dog so much Seb is in there. Oh. Is he? Yeah. anyway and so woody harrison he's so enormous with these gigantic hands held my dog oh and i was just like oh so i see it i feel it Yep. So excited that you guys relate. <laughs> What's your favorite breakfast? Uh classic millennial kind of thing. Um Avo on toast oh with, <laughs> with some poached eggs. Maybe a sausage, but not necessarily. But see how I feel. But yeah. Yum. Love it. Love, love, love. <laughs> oh, thanks for being a part of. Yeah, that was so awesome. Um, where can people find you? Should they should they want to stalk you on the internet? Yeah, so you can um, <laughs> go <Okay>. on. Um, <laughs> Instagram is pretty much the the. I try and just use one form of social media. I can't be bothered with all of it. Um, so Instagram is the one that I would use, um, and it's at musicatherapy. So it's M U I S. Uh, M-U-S-I-C-A-T-H-E-R-A-P-Y And that's me Thank you for being such a wonderful guest You are a delight Thank you guys Bye Bye. 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 Bye